This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code Return of YHP all one word for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned at the end of the episode where I answer a question from one of our patrons. And in fact, I took a poll in the Facebook group and we had a clear winner this week. And the question is Dan asking, you often mention that you were more afraid to be a liberal Christian than a non-believer when you were younger. What's the main belief you feared would change and has it changed? Is there anything that changed as you became more progressive that went back to or is now trending toward a more traditional position over time? Great question. But first, our guest today. Dr. Tricia Rhodes is an adjunct professor at Fuller Theological Seminary and author of seven books. And she is certainly to my right theologically. She and her husband pastored an evangelical church for decades, and her books are released by Zondervan, a pretty conservative Christian publishing house. I even make a little joke about that at one point in our conversation. 
But Trisha and I very much see eye to eye on what I think are some of the absolute most important issues of the individual Christian life. Time and hurry, prayer and contemplation, making space to see and feel the love of God in whatever ways we are most able to do that. Her interest in this area caused her to do a whole lot of neurological research for her book, The Wired Soul. And so we cover a decent amount of topical ground in just over an hour of conversation. And she presents some very compelling evidence along the way. It was a fantastic conversation, and I'm really excited for you guys to finally hear it. Trisha, in your book, you kind of start the conversation out by describing these trips you used to take as a kid with your family. What were these? These were like these unplanned sort of day excursions. Mm -hmm. Can you describe those trips? Yeah. They usually happened on Saturday mornings or Sunday afternoons. And we would just all pile in the car. Uh, There were five kids and my mom and dad and whatever animals we had at the time, they joined us. And we just drove. I don't know if my parents knew where they were going. We certainly never had a destination told to us. But at some point, we'd be out in the country and my dad would pull over and we'd all get out and we'd just play. Probably stay for hours running, climbing trees. You know, it was just spontaneous. There was no plan. We didn't have to be back at any time. And they're some of the highlights of my childhood. Yeah. So those are some of your favorite memories. Yeah. Yeah. And that word spontaneous, that's really the, that's the defining thing. I don't know the last time my wife and I did something that took longer than a couple hours that was spontaneous. Yeah. And so in the book you say, look, this is exactly the kind of thing that basically doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Families don't really do this, at least not, Mm -hmm. not most of us. Yeah. And not often. Is it obvious, like, what's changed? Is it just that we have cell phones and we, I mean, you know, what is what changed just basically technology? You know, I don't think it's just technology. I do think it is, has a lot to do with that. But, you know, we have as much time now as we did then, 24 hours in a day, right? Yep. And my dad worked two to three jobs. We were not, we didn't have a lot of money. He was a laborer, so he had to work hard. He was never there during the week. Technology, obviously, fills all our waking moments, and it's always demanding more from us. But I think, too, in America in particular, I don't know if this is true in other countries, but there there seems to be this drivenness that affects everything. So for, I'll just give one example, sports. When I was a kid, sports were through this high school You did maybe one, maybe two sports. There weren't club. There wasn't all-stars. There wasn't all these different things. So Saturdays now, for most families, if they're just inundated. They're slammed. Yeah, yeah, they're slammed. And there's just no time. That's what I see the difference is. There is no time that doesn't have a plan. Yeah, that's interesting. I I know there is a a movement now, the free-range kid movement, Mm. which is Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff talk about Mm. it in coddling of the American mind, their Mm. recent book. And it's like a reaction against this incredible segmentation of every waking hour. And it's the kind of thing that my wife and I are committed to as much as possible trying. And what they really talk about is the differences between free play for children and structured or supervised activities. Yes. 
and something different happens in the brain for mm. kids. They they become right. little adults more. They have to right. settle the score. One of the classes I'm teaching right now is practices of worship. One of the practices is Sabbath keeping. And one of the assignments was an article by a man named Tilden Edwards. And he in there talks about play. And he he makes the point that play enables us to really be in the image of God because God has the capacity to enjoy with no ulterior motive. Interesting. So when we play with no ulterior motive, we're just there for the pleasure of it. We're more like God than Hmm. many of the other things we might do. Yeah, that is a really interesting angle. So in the book, you describe our devices and our social media accounts and the other technology that we use as a technological umbilical cord, Mm -hmm. which I love that idea. What do you mean by that technological umbilical cord? Yeah, it pretty much speaks for itself. You know, the, the umbilical cord is how that baby gets life, oxygen, blood. It's also how it releases waste product. If they're cut off, we lose our breath, we lose our life, we lose our connection to the world. And, um, oh, and yeah. so it's like an umbilical cord in that sense. And all the junk goes out through it too. So. Yeah, it's both. <laughs> yeah. And, and really, I have felt that anxiety so mm-hmm. many times when I have left my phone behind. Yeah. And, you know, you, you might, I might forgive myself for it, but it is jarring. It's very to jarring. To have that like, whoa, why did I just feel so strongly yeah. that like my phone is at home? Yeah. Like, who cares? Yeah. But it's like an electricity yes. and it's this, I mean, it's gotta be some kind of an addictive withdrawal kind of yeah. thing, right? Oh, it is. And I, I think of one of the authors I read said it was, it's almost like a phantom limb. Wow. So, you know, when someone loses a limb, they keep feeling as if it's there. And so when you have it taken away, you feel like it's there, but you can't get it. One thing that you also touch on in the book is this idea of efficiency. Yeah. And efficiency is how a lot of technological solutions are sold to yeah. us, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and here's a quote. You say, if efficiency is the holy grail of technology, then we ought to find ourselves with more time on our hands, yeah. not less time. Of course, we don't find that. We fill in more and more mm-hmm. nooks and crannies with technology why, what's going on there, do you think? Yeah. The, I, I liken it in the book, and you're here in San Diego visiting me, so you can relate to this. I yeah. liken it to living in Southern California because we have this perfect weather almost all the time. The right. sun is shining, and uh, when it rains, we all go a little bit, we just get giddy, and it's because we finally feel like we have permission to do nothing. We can curl up with the book because the the weather is constant. I, I call us prisoners of choice. The weather gives us a million choices every day. What yeah. do you want to go out and do? And technology is the same way. It gives us so many choices. We're prisoners of those choices. And so we feel we have to take advantage of it. So we're grabbing here. And that doesn't even get into the fact that those who are making life more efficient for us, have to pay their bills, and they do it by, you know, connecting with the algorithms of our lives and then appealing to those and drawing us into more and more things. So, Yeah, that part of the cycle is particularly vicious. And one of the things that has gotten a lot of ink Mm -hmm. 
or digital ink as well, yeah. recently is this phenomenon that so many tech workers and executives, for instance, in Silicon Valley, yes. do not let their own children exactly. use the stuff that they make for a living. That's right. That's what right. do you think we should take from that fact? They understand uh, because they've seen the research. They, these are smart people. They know what kind of addictive properties they're trying to create in the products they create, and they don't want their kids to have to, you know, pay the price that we're paying. And in a way, it's a little bit, you know, hypocritical, I guess you could say. Uh, A lot of dropped out for that very reason. Some of them are now running organizations, nonprofits that are trying to to change, right? But yeah, that's (laughs) hopefully not too little too late Mm -hmm. to make up for their past sins. It's, It's kind of like if you... If you had a friend who was a doctor who said, I don't let my kids eat this food. Yeah. And then you just were like stuffing yourself with that food. Like you can, you're free to do that. Well, and also if the doctor was serving it at the table and, you know. Right. (laughs) That's, that's the, that's the flip side. And, and I think parents particularly don't feel the freedom to make these hard choices. And so I think we can look at Silicon Valley and say, well, gosh, if they can make those choices, maybe we can too. Yeah. Give ourselves a little bit of permission as it were. You say that one day we're going to look back at our use of technology much the same way that we today look at people smoking 50 years ago. That basically... They might have had an inkling of what was going on, but it wasn't so clear that it was bad. Yeah. And we, we see these old films or whatever. You yeah. know, you just even just remembering that like doctor's offices and hospitals would be full of smoke. Yeah. People are just smoking everywhere. Yeah. That's a strong statement that you think it's gonna yeah. be that bad with technology. <laughs> How would you defend that claim? Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, first of all, I didn't come up with that. I read it on a blog, and I can't rem- I never could remember where I read it, So, but I do want to give credit whoever said it. Yeah. But I loved it when I read it. And the reason is, back in the day, you know, my parents were both smokers in my youngest years. Everybody smoked. Everybody. And there were voices saying, this isn't good. But nobody could hear them because it was such a a rampant cultural phenomenon that the voices were buried. It is changing since I even wrote the book because I wrote it a couple of years ago and I'm hearing more voices saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, I think especially with gaming and our kids, people are really getting in touch with, wait a minute, this is totally taken over our lives. But the research is already in. There's enough science already even in this past year, we don't have a lot of studies in the United States, but there are studies in uh, Switzerland and some of the Norwegian countries, some in Europe, of, of the IQ and how it's gone down about seven points per generation since 1975. Wow. And 75, I think, is about when cable TV just came sweeping through yeah. and we began to get 24-7 television. So, And I want to just say when I... Anytime I talk about technology, TV is one of the biggest components of it. We're not just talking about cell phones. Exactly. Um, So anyway, because I know a lot of my generation will tell me, oh, yeah, I don't get into that technology. And I say, well, do you watch TV? And most of them watch a lot of TV. I mean, the average American, (laughs) doesn't the average American watch like six hours of television a day? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's an incredible number. Yeah. I I probably will watch four or five. (laughs) 
Well, I can watch six when I'm binging on, you know, a food show or something. But anyway, so all all that just to say, I think, and I could go on and on about the, the negative effects, but I think there will come a day where everybody will say, well, when we first got our cell phones, nobody told us. And so I'm just trying to be loud and clear about that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So let's spend a little bit of time with the neuroscience here. One of the phrases that we hear, Mm -hmm. if we do any reading, is neuroplasticity. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong. This is the idea that something about the way that the brain works, Mm -hmm. brain cells regenerate just like cells in other parts of our body, neurons regenerate. Right. And when they do, they actually can regenerate in new patterns, right? Is that yes. is that basically right? Yeah. So what else am I missing about neuroplasticity? <laughs> and then what are the what are the consequences of that fact? Yeah. So I'll, I want to start by saying I'm not a neuroscientist. And I, I'm yeah, actually... but you did a bunch of research for I this book. I did do research, but yeah. I have to say I had to read it over and over. So I, I don't want to... I might not say anything exactly right, but I, I'll sure. tell you my understanding... And I think it, why it matters so much. The brain is not high, hardwired from birth like we once thought. Right. And so between the, you know, there's a hundred billion neurons in our brains. And when they commute and they communicate by the things we do and the thoughts we have. And when they do, there's a little pathway created between them. And what they've discovered is those pathways, that's what changes. And every night, this is amazing when you think about it, every night when we go to sleep, there's a pruning process in our brain. And neural pathways that have been used a lot, one of the authors I read, I thought this was the best illustration, he said it's like a road crew that comes in and they look for roads that everybody's traveling on and they really take care of them. But those roads where nobody's gone down, they just ignore them. Now, I'm actually taking a lifespan psychology course right now, and mm-hmm. I just read about this in terms of infant brains. Mm-hmm. And so this, this, this road crew, yeah. this, see, this, is exa- this is why a child, a human yeah. child can be born in any culture. They, they start with the same capacity to learn yes. language, yes. but the brain will prune the sounds that they need to know. Exactly. This is why when I listen to someone speaking in Vietnamese, mm-hmm. it just sounds like clock, 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 right. clock, clock. Because my brain didn't develop to determine, you know, the differences in intonation. Mm-hmm. And we, I sound like that to them. Exactly. And yeah. so it's, this actually is, it's beautiful. It's incredible mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's sort of like with birds. Yeah. Have a similar thing where all birds have the ability to sing and chirp and and receive those sounds they they all have that but then through listening to their parents hmm. their brains start to pick up the ones that matter for their particular yes. species right so it's the same thing going on yeah. and that is an incredibly powerful aspect mm-hmm. of our brains yes yeah i mean that's that's kind of the good news here that's the good news right so we we could go doom and gloom mm-hmm. about what's happening with our technology mm-hmm. but we have plasticity yes Yes, and I want to say that also very loud and clear. I wrote The Wired Soul to give hope. I didn't write it to just present the problem. I wrote it to say, we can do something about this. So I'll go doom and gloom just for a minute. Sure. Because what 
technology is doing, the way it's wiring our brains, because of what being on a screen where we're constantly drawn away from what we're looking at, it's wiring our brains for constant motion, so that it's very hard. And we all know this, it's very hard for us to focus on one thing, our minds jump around, they call it, uh, Asians call it monkey mind. I was just going to say monkey brain. (laughs) Monkey mind, monkey brain, and surface skimming. And so we're not learning to really sit with knowledge until it has time to to saturate in. And then addiction. Uh, We talked about this a minute ago, I might be watching a TV show. And the whole time I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to go to my computer and check to see what's on there. Exactly. And I, it's an addictive thing. And so that is how my brain has been wired. So that's the doom and gloom is that the, the technology has really done a number on us without us knowing. It's keeping us from being able to think deeply, to be present to the the moment at hand, to develop memory. Uh, There's so many things, but the good news is we can change all that. That is good news. It's not easy to change all that though, right? (laughs) So what do we know Uh neuroscientifically, neurologically about habits and habit forming. Yeah. What did you what did you find yeah. in the literature on on that question? Yeah. So there's really there's two ways that those neural pathways can be changed if we want to change them. One, we don't have a lot of control over. It's through dramatic or traumatic experiences or events. something that happens to us. Yes, yeah, something yeah. happens to us and it's really strong and powerful and it's amazing because the brain that'll go deep and that's why it's so hard for us to overcome trauma. I have a friend who was a uh, rampant alcoholic, nothing stopped, went to prison, didn't stop drinking, in prison one night is given meth as he's blackout drunk, has such a traumatic experience on meth that that then overwrote the traumatic experience he had Mm. had before that had Mm. him drinking. Mm. And so now he hasn't wanted to drink, but like, obviously you don't recommend trying to manufacture an experience like that, that he's grateful for that experience. Of course, it could could have gone much worse. He could have OD'd. He could have harmed himself. Right. But as it happened, like that worked out for him. But that's, that's not the kind that we, that's not a habit. Yeah. He just lucked out that he had this not so bad, but really bad experience that, and I'm sure he still got plenty of trauma to work through even with that experience. But that's one way, but that's not yeah, that's not the norm. And I, norm. I do have to throw in here because I think there's also the, these beautiful spiritual experiences people have. And I right. have seen that happen where they have an experience with the presence of God. And it's so strong that they are able to change some behaviors in an instant. So yeah. I, I don't want to say it can't happen. Yep. I have I have another friend who through a spiritual experience was cured of his alcoholism yeah. in a moment. Yeah. And he was an incredibly heavy drinker. Yeah. That can happen. It can happen too. But for yeah. most, uh, what I tell people is that's, those are the exceptions. And I'm right. always saying, give it to me, Lord, but it doesn't happen that often. So how do you change then? What we know now is it takes doing the same things repeatedly over time. They used yeah. to even say 30 days. I say at least three months of doing the same thing before you really begin to, to, 
you never even permanently alter those neural pathways. That's why I can go on off yeah. of sugar for six months and I'm, I'm over it. But then as soon as I start eating it again, I'm right back where I was. So you never right. permanently change them, but you can change them. And so with technology, you can change these, these, the, that addictive property. You can change that. You don't have to be addicted to your devices, for example. I I see myself so much in that example you gave of you're watching a show, but you're checking your laptop or I'm checking my phone. And I've been paying attention to this now for a couple years. Yeah. Just to my own habits and what's going on. And I think, I don't know if you picked up on any of this in the research. My personal experience is that I can correlate how flighty my brain is and how surfacy and how quickly I'm checking my social media accounts and Mm -hmm. flitting from one thing to the next. I can correlate that with like other tangible measures of mental and spiritual health Mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. How well am I loving my wife? How well am I doing stuff around the house? I told her I would do how much prayer and how much prayer time am I getting? Mm -hmm. How short am I being with friends when they frustrate Mm -hmm. me? You know, Mm -hmm. like, it seems to be of a piece. Now, I haven't, yeah. I could maybe do a little study on myself. I yeah. haven't, but yeah. do you, have you seen evidence that that would be the case? I wouldn't say I read research on that, but I would say common sense says it. And and it, in some ways it might be the chicken or the egg kind right. of thought, but I do believe those habits of quietness and silence, prayer, those contribute to our ability to control these things. So that's where I say that may be that may be making a big difference too. Yeah. So maybe in that case, it it might be that the times when I do make space in the mornings or a couple times a day, then I am priming my brain to be more able to resist the addictive impulse or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of habits, this is this is something I am very passionate about. We're about 100 miles from USC where the late great Dallas Willard yeah. taught and and taught about this type of thing very. for mm-hmm. for decades. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the ways he talked about it was discipleship. Right. He said he called it the great omission mm-hmm. when we talk about the great commission as meaning make converts. Mm-hmm. He's like doesn't say to make converts, yeah. says to make disciples. What were Jesus's disciples doing? They were living in the way of Jesus. They were yeah. literally following him and living like he lived. Yeah. And and that's sort of also based on an understanding of what rabbis did and, you know. Right. And we really, in our consumeristic American version of Christianity, we, we've really dropped that part down, mm-hmm. most of us, I think. Mm-hmm. What, what do you What do you see as the... The main causes. I mean, it sounds like you agree. Yeah. So we're not going to argue about that. <laughs> I do, yeah. What do you think some of the main causes are for that shift in emphasis over time? That's a very good question because I don't think I think it's gotten better in my lifetime. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so I have come full circle on that because I come from a very legalistic background. Okay. And my, I was raised in a legalistic church where people were very much about doing all the right things, mm. very little about the heart. And so I kind of pushed against that once I really began to understand grace for myself. 
And even one of my books called Sacred Chaos, I even have a chapter in there and say, can we just forget this quiet time obsession? You know, I'm kind of trying to relieve people of this works orientation, but I'm also trying to motivate them by relieving them, right? Right. I wouldn't write that chapter that way now because of what I've learned that actually, if we don't develop the habits, we're never going to change our hearts. Yeah. And I used to think if I changed my heart, the habit would follow. And that just is not true. Yeah. One thing I used to hear a lot from a pastor who I liked very much was we just need to really believe and understand that we are covered by grace. And once we really get that, once we really cognitively get that, it will change our life. And he, to his credit, has kind of stopped talking that way. Mm -hmm. And he has embraced a lot more of a spiritual direction, you know, sort of a habit forming. You know, he he talks about doing the examine, the Jesuit Mm -hmm. prayer Mm -hmm. from the pulpit now. And so he's kind of changed on that too. And, you know, it is true. Speaking of psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy does work. There are some things you can do. You can repeat things and get yourself to believe different things that will change your behavior. Right. Um, but actually, that only works when you make it a habit. Exactly. So it, it might even seem, the thinking, even telling yes. yourself something, just knowing it isn't enough. No, you, you are going to remind yourself. You're yes. going to have to remind yourself. Right. Yeah. And so even then, where we would say, "Well, look, you can change your thoughts, and it changes your behavior." Well, yeah. only if you make a habit of it. Exactly. That's the only time it That's actually so works. True. That's a great point. Yeah. I have a very similar uh, full circle as well. I was raised evangelical. And the phrase personal relationship with Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ was the catch all catchphrase of my evangelical upbringing. But no one really told me what that meant. Exactly. Now, they might have and I didn't hear it or wasn't listening. I I wasn't Mm -hmm. mature enough. I'm sure there were some people in that milieu that had a rich understanding of that. And I know in particular, a couple of them were introducing Dallas Willard books around the time that I was in high school and junior high. Mm -hmm. I was too young to really get that. In my experience, the joke I tell is personal relationship with Jesus Christ meant do your quiet time and don't masturbate. That's what (laughs) it was. Exactly. And and that wasn't very fulfilling. And then I rebelled against that phrase. Mm -hmm. And I basically was like, I don't want to hear this phrase anymore. Mm -hmm. And then in the last five years or so, approaching contemplative practice, Mm -hmm. I go, oh, this is a personal relationship. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And now there's a way of, you know, well, how do you know it's Jesus? Well, that's that's a sort of a theological claim, I believe in a Trinitarian God. Mm -hmm. So my -hmm. personal relationship is with God. Right. And then I am extrapolating that that's with Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. because I believe in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And that's not the same as like a Jesus is my boyfriend, you know, kind of a cultural thing. (laughs) Yeah. But I've come full circle on that. I don't use that phrase all the time. Mm -hmm. I still, you know, like these phrases, we become allergic to them for our own story reasons. Right. But basically that is the thing that I encourage people to do and that I now consider (laughs) myself to have. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I so, so relate to that. And I, when I was 19 and I had a broken engagement and I just thought my life was over, an older aunt said to me, you need to fall in love with Jesus. Hmm. And honestly, I had never heard anything like that. Now, now, now we hear all that kind of language, but at that time, and I, it was a, earth shattering moment, literally for me, because I 
then I knew there was something about this quote unquote personal relationship that I had never gotten, Mm. never understood. And she had it. And I, she began to give me the classics from Saints of Old. And, and I said, it was mm. like a foreign land that I knew I wanted to go. I didn't know how to get there, but I knew I was going there. Well, let's, you know? let's talk, let's get a little bit more of that biography. So yeah. do you remember some of those early books? Like what, what's some of the stuff that set you on a path towards doing more of the contemplative yeah. spiritual direction stuff? Probably uh, there was lots of them, but one of my, Probably the one one that had huge impact was uh, Madame Guyon. Experiencing the depths uh, of Jesus Christ. That was one of them. Okay. And then I yeah. read her spiritual autobiography, and she just became my mentor. I mean, mm. literally, she became my mentor. It's like, I want to live the way she lived. I want to know what she knew. I want to experience what she experienced. So she was a huge one. And that book in particular, oh, everybody, everybody should read that book it might be out of print but it was called the spiritual autobiography of madame Guyon. Oh, they actually called it that okay. yeah yeah i'll put a link to whatever i can okay. find in the show notes for people who want to check out yeah. these books she was arrested she wrote commentary she had to learn the bible from sitting in mass she didn't have a bible she sat in mass heard it would go home try to memorize what she heard she would write commentaries on it she wrote a commentary on song of songs and was in you know just and she she's what years is she's french right uh, yeah 17th century yeah Mm -hmm. and so she got put in the bastille and they got a group of men to try her and one of the men that tried was on the board was Francois Fenelon, who was the educator in the King's Palace, and he came to deep, deep faith through her ministry. And so his books, Christian Perfection, is absolutely one of the most important books I ever read, and he learned from her. So there were others, but those those were two that had such a huge impact on me. For the second of the two patron-only episodes this month in April, I spoke with William Lloyd. William is a listener of the show and himself a patron. And when he emailed me and we started chatting, I found so much about his story and his current work interesting that I wanted to interview him. What is especially interesting to me is the fact that he works with a program that uses the Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step type structure combined with Christian theology and biblical teaching And I have long thought that there was something really unique about the 12-step process and the kind of open God-slash-higher-power language that's used, this lack of judgment baked into the very structure of the meetings, all that stuff. So we chatted about that and about his own story of heartbreak and recovery, of deconstruction and reconstruction. Here are some clips of my conversation with William. You mean to tell me that Adam... Adam just totally upended the human race and put us in this this hole and destroyed the human race. And Jesus could only undo a little bit of that. Jesus could only get a few. I, I was like, you know, shit, Adam is so much more powerful than Jesus, you know? <laughs> oh, my god! You know? And, yeah. like, the answer kind of was kind of flat. You know, a lot of the addicts, they, you know, some of them— I mean, it, it it hits everybody, 
but a lot of them, it, it was the, the legalism um, that really killed them and really drove them away. And my marriage and the counselor told me that you're in, a, you're in an abusive relationship. And I kind of said, that that can't happen. I'm a man. Yeah. Women can't be abusive to a man. <laughs> you yeah, know, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. And uh, so I was just um, very um, dysfunctional. I was codependent. Um, I was I was definitely sexually dysfunctional, you know, as far as just feeling guilty about my desires and, and having an unwilling partner. And he said, make a chart. Your resentment, who you're resenting, why? your part in it, and God's view. So I said, I said, you know, Billy, his name was Billy. I said, you know, I said, I, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I'm a nice guy. You know, I don't hate anybody. You know, I, well, d- skip that part. <laughs> he, says, <laughs> he says, you know, he says, uh, no, he goes, I'll fire you. That's a term that they use in AA. That if hmm. you don't go along and, and really kind of listen to the wisdom of your sponsor, you're fired. You know, I love you, but I'm, I'm not your sponsor. <laughs> he goes, I'll fire you. I said, I don't. He goes, listen, he goes, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and lead you and do it. And I'll be honest, Dan, five pages later of listing and working out my resentments blew me away. And I brought it to him. And, and step five is that you, you know, you confess the exact nature of your wrongs. I read the list to him. And I felt such a weight come off my shoulders. I did not realize all the things that I had stuffed and all the, uh, the emotions. So if that sounded interesting to you, or if you want to be a part of the group that submits questions or guest recommendations or the questions that I answer at the epi- end of the episodes or just to be a part of the Facebook group, or just to be a part of this tiny little movement, then become a patron. Starts at only five bucks a month, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. If money is truly an issue, email me and we will talk. I don't want that to keep you from being a part of this. Now, back to my conversation with Trisha Rhodes. Why do you think the church has remained silent about the dangers of technological overuse while the research on it has been coming from yeah. essentially non-religious, maybe right. some of them are religious, but just science? Yeah. They're the people who have actually rang the alarm bells. It's really not come from right. the church or from clergy. Right. You know, I think, and I think that's changing as well, but I think that the church is, has been guilty of, and I'm part of the church. So when I say the church, I'm talking about myself. (laughs) My husband's a pastor and, and we've uh, pastored a church for a lot of years. I think we bifurcate the Christian life and we have the secular and we have the sacred and technology just seems to, to fit out there somewhere instead of, you know, this integration of, of our entire life, kind of what you were saying a little bit ago about what is discipleship. It's, it's a life that is, you know, following Jesus in the way that he lived. And so technology being so much a part of our life, it seems almost bizarre that it doesn't hold a huge place in our discipleship because it's, it's our life. But I think that's why I think the church has tended to say, well, there's prayer and there's, 
you know, scripture and there's community and there's giving and there's witnessing and there's all these spiritual activities. And then there's life out here. And they don't integrate them real well, I think. I think also it's probably worse in the evangelical world than in some other areas. Like, Mm -hmm. for instance, you know, Quakers. Yeah. There are groups of Christians who part of their identity is actually standing apart from the culture. Yeah. So for Quakers, it'd be pacifism. So they're standing apart from sort of the military industrial complex, the way that we sort of cavalierly think about war. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that sets them apart. In their book, Divided by Faith, uh, Michael O. Emerson and Christian Smith, sociologists, Mm. both Christian guys, have a theory about this for evangelicalism. And Mm. what they say is that basically since the Great Awakenings, that stream of Christianity in which, you know, you and I were both raised has tended to prioritize the saving of souls. Mm -hmm. And when they do that, they basically say, we're not going to push buttons on anything else. Mm -hmm. We're going to go along to get along Mm -hmm. with whatever large, generally speaking, the culture is doing Mm. so that we can get people in to hear the gospel. Mm. So you drive, you know, we're here in North, North San Diego County. Yeah. You, there's all these big roads. There's all these nice big houses everywhere. And then you see these big churches that look yeah. like the malls. And, yeah. and that for, to them go, that makes perfect sense. Right. That's a perfectly evangelical uh, response to a culture. Mm-hmm. It is to not have there be a lot of cultural friction mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. in their mind, the cultural friction will keep them out of the doors Hmm. and then they won't hear the gospel. Interesting. And so you Hmm. may or may not agree with that theological thrust, depending on what you think evangelism should be. Yeah. But certainly this seems to be one of the consequences of that kind of an approach. Hmm. I, I think that may well be true, but I'm not sure I know of voices, but I, I don't know of any group within you know, Christianity that is trying to be revolutionary in terms of the consumerism and the, the cultural, and I mean, related to technology. I don't know, you know. Yeah. Oh, so, right. So there is not like a particular uh There's not a movement in a sense. Yeah, yeah. There are voices. Yeah, that's interesting. It might just be early. Yeah, right? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it's coming. And perhaps it it might be that, to a great extent, maybe the evangelical movement has been guilty of that kind of sort of cultural laying down, but this one is so ubiquitous. Yeah. It's almost like questioning capitalism. Yeah. Where you could do it, but like, it's such a high bar. Yeah. And maybe we're still at a point where it's a really high bar to go against the kind of technological onward progress or whatever. Christopher Smith, in his book, Slow Church, and he has a chapter on Sabbath keeping, and he talks about how counter... And Sabbath is taking that time away, and it's saying Mm. it's a very counter-cultural move because it's saying, I don't have to be involved in the busyness and the crazy, chaotic world that you know, and so I will let all that go for a period of time. And he says it's very countercultural, very, it's a revolutionary act, really. Yeah. So. Oh, more revolutionary with every year, <laughs> yes, it seems like. Yes. 
one of the great things about the book is you go through a number of actual practices. Yeah. We're not going to, I'm not going to have you give away the whole book here, <laughs> but one of the ones that I found really interesting is this idea of slow and deep reading. Yeah. What, first of all, what is that? Yeah. Well, reading has become a lost art as well. And the research, I do go over it in the book, but reading on screens, our brains handle it very differently. So when we read on a screen, the comprehension is less. We speed read. We read in an F pattern. We we don't sit with what we're reading. So like I love novels and I read them on my Kindle because I don't really care, you know, if it stays with me. But everything else... I have to have the hard copy. And so slow reading is saying, I am going to be really present to the text. I'm going to reflect on what I read. I'm going to, you know, just take the time and make the space. It, it We shouldn't even have to call it slow reading. It should just be reading. It should just but, be reading. Like <laughs> actually comprehending what you're reading. It's actual reading. Yeah, but because yeah. we, you know, again, with, with digital natives, they didn't grow up with books. They grew up with iPads, and so they don't even know. So we call it slow reading, which basically means just reading in a way that really engages you with the text. One practice that I've started doing, and now I can't live without it, is I always have a pen with me, mm-hmm. and I am marking up the book, and I'm yeah. I'm I'm yeah. highlighting parts I like, and I'm writing questions, or I'm. In yeah. the margins I'm writing, oh, this is like this other thing I yeah. know. Yeah. That that kind of thing I find helpful for comprehension. Mm-hmm. When I'm doing it really well, when I finish a book, I'll mm-hmm. go back through and reread all the stuff that I yeah. bracketed or whatever. Yeah. I don't always do that because I'm too anxious <laughs> to get on to the next book. Yeah, exactly. But if I did do that, yeah. it would be another 30% investment, mm-hmm. but I probably would retain twice as much well, or something actually, like that. This is something totally different, but I just, uh, I'm reading a book f- for Fuller's having me read called Make It Stick, and it's the science mm. of learning. And so I don't know if I would ever be disciplined enough to do this, but they basically are saying, actually, if you would quiz yourself at the end of each chapter, rather than even just reading your notes, if you would just at the end of the chapter say, I'm going to ask myself 10 questions. And then go back and find the answers. If you didn't, you will actually learn more. Isn't that interesting? I bet that, well, of course. <laughs> I don't so, know. That might be. That's uh, a little much, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I won't be able to do it. Yeah. Let's talk about silence. Mm. Silence comes mm. up a lot in your book. It is probably the number one character in the contemplative literature. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, probably within Christianity and in other faith traditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why is silence important? Yeah. I I believe that it takes being silent to really be with ourselves. That's one of the first things. I don't, I think when we are with other people or with our devices or with anything, you know, that's taking our attention away, we can sort of just keep all of that down. And when we get silent, we have to say, who am I? And what's really going on in me? And we have to experience ourselves. And so that's one huge thing, I think, for silence. And for me, as a person of faith, having that space to experience God as well. So experiencing myself, my true self, and experiencing God, his as he is, those are, those are the central themes of silence for me. 
there are benefits to it that you don't have to have a faith walk. But for, for me as a person of faith, that's one of the biggest benefits. Can you give us an example, maybe an example from early in your contemplative spirituality journey, and then maybe just one from the last few weeks where the silence showed you something Mm. uh, that, that stuck with you after. Oh yeah. That's yeah. Oh, I got so many. I'll, I'll tell you one from a long, long time back because it was so central. I was at a crisis of faith in that I was moving out of legalism and feeling like I was living a life that God needed me to accomplish his purposes. And I said to my husband one night, I don't know what to do because God doesn't need me. And my husband had the brilliance to say, well, that's just it. You can't do anything, can you? Mm. (laughs) Which made me mad because I said, give me a list and I'll be happy. You know, don't tell me I can't do anything. So I went to bed the next morning. I got up and went to my place of silence, began to say, God, if you don't show me something, I, I'm, I'm done. And I began to see a fire. I began to see a picture, a vision of a fire. And my life was in that fire. And everything I had done teaching, and, and I'd even written a couple books by then, and, and they were pretty good books, actually. But it was all burning up. And I'm in this watching this fire, and I'm just weeping. And this went on for like 20 minutes. And I'm weeping, I'm watching it all burn. And then I, it gets to the end. And I just said, God, is there anything left? And I'm crying. And I see come up out of those ashes, the word grace. And I heard a voice. I believe it was God saying, you know, I've always worked in spite of you. And I always will. And that radically changed my life. That was one of those, you know, moments. So that that was a, a biggie. And you needed to be silent for 30 plus minutes to yeah. have that experience. Absolutely. God was not going to smack you in the head with a vision of your life burning up on your way to the grocery store. No, that usually doesn't happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't have my attention if he wanted to, you know, I mean, that can happen, but it doesn't usually. Yeah, it took a long time to get to that place in that silence. I took... When I get silent with the Lord, the first thing I do is try to touch base with who I am and where I'm at. Yeah. And okay, I'm I'm anxious. Why am I anxious? What is going on? And so I can be authentic with yep. God because why why would I even be want to talk to God if I can't be who I am? So I start there. So that takes time, you know. So anyway, more recent, I am at a really interesting place. My husband and I pastored, we started this church here in San Diego 37 and a half years ago. Last year, year and a half ago, we turned it over to a young couple. And and then we went on sabbatical. And I've been on sabbatical for nine months. And we've come back and I have no clue what God wants me to do. We're back at the church. My husband's happy because he's got things he can do and he doesn't have to be in charge anymore. He loves that. I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so I am spending a lot of my time in silence with, without a voice, without words, without clarity. And I'm just believing that the silence is creating space for whatever it is God's going to do and has for me. But I feel like I have to give him that space. And I don't know when it's going to be clear. 
It makes me think of um, Father Paul Fitterer, is a Jesuit man who retired a year and a half ago, and I had been spending some time with him and some other friends, and he was asked to leave by his Jesuit sort of, Hmm. you know, the people above him, his post at this Jesuit high school in Seattle, and he had this kind of long period where he was like, I'm not ready to go, I'm not ready to go, and Hmm. he just, he kept... Hmm. up with the silence and he just felt like in that time like he described it as god saying to him you're transitioning into the last phase here Hmm. you just need to accept Hmm. my love Hmm. Mm -hmm. you've done enough hearing it in his voice the difference once he you know came to that but he had a lifetime of practice yeah but what if he had not yeah sat those times what if he had not gone on retreat what if he had not done those things then would he now just be raging yeah at the powers that be yeah you know would he would he not be able to accept Mm -hmm. it as Mm -hmm. the next phase yeah i think you're getting at a really critical issue which is how desperately we need silence and solitude and yet how hard it is for us to make it a habit and a practice and I think there's, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. I don't know. We can talk about that if you want. That's or... literally my next question oh, okay. was, we all know this is good for us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we, we can't for a second take our current cultural moment seriously and not mm-hmm. admit that we need silence yeah. and solitude. Yeah. So for those of us who go, yeah, duh, of course that's true, but I'm really bad at doing it. Yeah. Like, why are we bad at doing it? Yeah. And what? can we do to start doing it? Yeah. So I, this is interesting because I'm actually getting ready. I'm working with a market researcher and I'm, I'm going to do research on this very thing because it's like I have, we have this amazing gift and, and for people of faith like myself, it isn't just silence, but it's actually getting to be with the creator and experience this mystical thing that makes life have meaning. And then the science of it by secular scientists who say, this is incredibly good for you. This can rewire your brain so that you can focus. This can, can deal with depression. This can make you a deeper thinker. This can, you know, all the things they say it can do, and then we don't do it. So here's, Here's my best guess, but it's all hypothetical because I'm going to do the research, okay? Okay. (laughs) You're hearing my hypotheses. So I think number one is I really don't think, even though we say we know it's good, I don't think we know how good it is for us. Hmm. I don't think we really believe it can change our life. So you're saying it's maybe different than exercise, where everyone really does know how good exercise is yeah. for them and they just yeah. don't do it. Like I just yeah. don't do it. Yeah. But I, I do like, I really do understand maybe it's 15 more years of life. Yes. I get yes. that. Yeah. And maybe when it comes to silence, I go, yeah, of course silence would be good, but I don't understand it's 15 more years. Right. I don't understand right. how we can't, good it is. We can't, yeah, we can't quantify what it will course, do for yeah. you. The science is there. But even if it weren't, so that I think is, and, and as people of faith, I don't believe people understand or have experienced mm-hmm. the power of the mystical presence. I don't think they've, so they don't know it's there for them. So that's num- that's my number one reason. Number two is that we, when we, we either have failed 
or we're afraid of failing because when we do get silent, it just, uh, we always see is all this stuff inside of us. And it's hard. It's hard. hard. And we, it's uncomfortable. And we don't know that that's exactly where we want to be when we're trying to be in a spiritual place is, and I had, it took me a long time to learn that. Yeah, God, this is what you got. This is what you got. I'm a, I'm really crappy. I was, you know, I yelled at that person. I, I can't control, you know, my sugar addiction. I'm frustrated with life. I don't know if I believe you really care. You know, all these things come up and rather than press them down, silence really gives us the chance to let them come out and be what they are and then find out who we really are underneath all that. Yeah, it is. I mean, it really gets to this question of how honest are we about ourselves and the world and how clearly do we see ourselves and do we see the world? And, you know, after a few times, just trying to be quiet, trying to slow down the mind and focus on the affect emotions and whatever, you you pretty quickly start to realize like, oh, this is the real world. And most of my life is, is very well curated and set up right. to avoid the real world. Exactly. And in fact, most of the products I buy and services I use are specifically designed to to keep me hooked into them. Like yeah. the algorithms of all the yeah. techno- technological, you know, the apps and yeah. and the social media networks and and the cable news and all of it is is yeah. their all of their incentives are to keep me on there as much yeah. as possible. And you start to see a connection between the unplugging right. and then the, the seeing things more clearly. Right. And once you begin to be brave enough to do that, then that's when you begin to experience the power of it. But I would say this is my third. My third reason is we don't do it long enough or often enough for it to become that habit that is all that it promises. So it, you t- we try one day, two days for five minutes and it doesn't really produce anything. And so we give up and we Mm. go on our way. And so I, I, I tell people, look, commit to 10 minutes, commit every day for the next month, whatever it takes and do it at the same time. If you can, everything you can do to help your brain know, this is what I do. Making an event. I, I light my fireplace every morning. I make my coffee. I have a whole thing I do to make it a special. And you really need to to make it that. And I think that's the biggest reason is people do have tried and failed and they don't really do it long enough. So I'm that's my big let's just do it every day and try it. So this is like probably the most uncool thing about my life that I have shared on the show. Thus far, (laughs) I was recently diagnosed with sleep apnea, and I now have a CPAP machine. And when the guy showed me the CPAP machine, he said, look, he's like, look, you're paying, you're buying the thing right now, first of all. So you're paying for it, and like, you might as well use it. And he said, the type of people who give up, they try it, they don't like it, it's hard for them to sleep, they wait a few days, they maybe try it again, wait a couple more days, and eventually they stop using it. Yeah. He's like, if you just, if you... You can take it off in the middle of the night, but use it at least for the first few hours <laughs> of sleep good. every night yeah. for six weeks. Yeah. And then anyone who does that, they get used to it. Yeah. They sleep better. Yeah. And so there is a there is a sense in which 
I don't think that there is an accepted, acknowledged, agreed upon mm-hmm. amount of time. Mm-hmm. If someone says, you know, I tried contemplative practice and I didn't experience God. Well, it would be good if we sort of knew, mm-hmm. like, so maybe from, from the neuroscience, from habit forming, mm-hmm. what would be in your mind, like, yeah. what's a what's a conservative estimate of like, if you did it for this long and then mm-hmm. still nothing happened, okay, mm-hmm. let's talk. Yeah, from the neuroscience, I would say, they say 30 days. I would say 30 to 90 days. Yeah. And I would give 10 minutes. I think it's better if you can give 30, but yeah. most people can't. They can't even tolerate the idea of I have to start being, at seven minutes. Yeah, you got to start and somewhere. And work my way up. I have I'm, still ex- nowhere near, I'm still nowhere near an hour, half hour, most yeah, days. Yeah, and you do it. have to work. And I, I have an exercise in the book that's 12 minutes. Yeah. And one of my best friends said, I felt like I was in timeout trying to do that because she set her timer, you know, and yeah. she's watching it and going, Ugh! Yeah. so I say 10 minutes. I think most people can do 10 minutes and I think it, t- it you have to have 10 minutes to even get still enough. So, um, and then by the way, the fourth reason that I didn't say, oh, yeah. which is what we've been talking about the whole time is the distraction, the, the monkey mind, people just get discouraged. And I would say that's a huge thing now. And so it's something we have to really combat. Now, I, too, have had this, what I would call, mystical encounter with yeah. God through this practice. Yeah. It has completely changed my life. Mm-hmm. It reoriented my faith. Like I'm only doing this podcast. I'm only able to be honest about my theological intuitions because of that experience. Yeah. And then I was able to not be terrified of being a liberal Christian, Mm. which I was terrified of because I thought that I would go to hell for that. Mm. And it was only through fairly regular or at least occasional enough interaction directly with God in Mm. prayer that Mm -hmm. I felt unconditionally loved. Mm -hmm. But some people try a long time and they don't ever have that mystical experience. And one thing that some friends have been clear with me about with the way that I talk about this. Sometimes they say, look, you remind me of certain kinds of Pentecostals when they say Mm. you need the second baptism Mm. of the Holy Mm. Spirit. And if you haven't gotten that, you are only a, you're only a first order, not a second Mm. order Mm. Christian. And so I'm trying to be conscious of that. And I don't, honestly, I don't know what percentage of people will have an experience like that if they do it for 30 to 90 days. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you have a sense you've been at this a lot longer than me mm-hmm. and and teaching in it and whatnot? I, is it that everyone will get something but they won't necessarily get that or <laughs> you know, what what has been your experience? How do you avoid that pitfall? Yeah, that's really good. And recently, well, a few years ago, I was mentoring a young woman and she came to me and said, you know, ask me, should I just discipline myself to to get that time in silence because you know the dog has to be fed and the kids keep waking up and it's just really been hard and you know do you just make yourself that was her question and and I thought about it I thought you know I'll tell you what I said I because I tend to be a disciplined person I would say I disciplined myself for a lot of years and then at some point I began to know that there was an experience I was having and that has grown and grown and grown. 
Okay, so it wasn't like a one time all of a sudden for me. It's been a gradual growing. And that's what I think it should be for everybody. I can't tell you the pace that you will grow at it, right? But if I can tell you this, if you don't create the space, you won't ever have it. You know? Well, that that's obviously true. Yeah. But that's interesting. My experience was different. It was like I was so ready yeah. for that kind of, or for I didn't yeah. know it, that like the second and third and fourth time I did it, I was flooded with joy. Yeah. It was undeniable. Yeah. And I think that for me, God needed to like smack me upside the head and say, no, this is where the life is. Yeah. And you know, this podcast, obvious proof, I'm an abstract thinker. I'm an intellectual kind of a guy and I like to keep things in my head. And it was God saying, no, 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 there's something going on with your body Mm -hmm. and you need to, yes. And you actually need to pay attention to that. And, but then I think I can, I worry about, I don't want to oppress other people and, and get their hopes up or make them feel like they haven't had the full experience that I've had. Right. So I think we do have to be very careful. I, I'm a contemplative by nature. Hmm. And so I don't, I am, (laughs) I am. So I have to be very careful that I don't expect other people to have my experience. So, so what I, I see there, but I believe everybody needs to create that space in their life. They need it for their own health and wholeness and they need it to open themselves up to God. I, what I told this young woman is I said, I don't regret a single day that I disciplined myself to sit inside. I don't regret it at all. Mm. There was gains there that I couldn't see. And so that's, so that's one thing. The other thing I would say is, and I heard this, I don't even remember, but the yearning, the desire that puts you in that place where you're creating space, that is an experience of God, I believe. I agree. And so you rather than try to measure it up, up against someone else's experience, let it be your own and trust God that he, you know, you will have what you need when you need it. Create the space, learn to be authentic, uh, learn to deal with distraction, and then just see what happens. Speaking of abstract, <laughs> as you have both practiced contemplative spirituality mm-hmm. and learned this neuroscience Mm -hmm. stuff researching this book has it changed the way you think about any kind of major doctrines of christianity Mm. the one i have in mind is sin yeah because the more you learn about the brain i mean a lot of people that i know who have learned about the brain they think of sin as sort of less of a often the things that we think of as well this person sinned against god and made a rebellious choice it starts to get nuanced and shaded. Well, yeah. their prefrontal cortex is not yeah. as well wired up, and yeah. and you know, so they can't defer uh, for the future, and therefore they injured this person. You know, all this yeah. stuff. Has it changed your thoughts on sin or or any other kind of major major Interesting. doctrine? Interesting. I haven't uh, that particular angle. Now, again, I'm coming from a Christian theological position that that we are not all that we will one day be. So even the brain. So yes, all that's true. But I would also say what I I, I think it's so interesting that Jesus, when he came, his very first 
you know, message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And basically what he was saying is there's a, that, that word repent is metanoia is to change your whole way of viewing things. Right. And that's what repentance isn't, uh, you know, I, I did a bad thing. I'm sorry. Now I won't do it anymore. Repentance is the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. Kingdom of God. mean that's what the scriptures tell us. It means where, where Jesus is ruling. It's, things are made right. Yeah. There's peace and there's joy. So how do I change the way I think about things so that that becomes my experience? So for me, you know, repent when I see sin, whether it's a, a, a sin, like I yell at somebody or I lose my temper or whether it's just my general uh, malaise when I see poor people, you know, and I don't want to do anything about it. Uh, the bigger, you know, Either way, it's it, there is a changing of the mind that has to happen, and it isn't just learning truth that's going to do it. It's going to be making decisions. So, for example, I don't. I tend to not be a person with a lot of mercy. Honestly, it's not my nature, and so I have to actually make sure I'm doing merciful things. Because by doing those merciful things, it changes me and it makes yeah. me a merciful person. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of some of the things I've thought about. It is interesting to combine repent with the kingdom of God as at hand. Yeah. I think that we usually think of repentance completely divorced from that. Yeah, unfortunately, because it was Jesus' message. Why would we only take half of what he said? I think that that, I mean, taking a stab at it, I think that that might be because the juridical model of sin and salvation has become the dominant metaphor mm. in Protestant understanding. Mm-hmm. And it's not the dominant metaphor. And it, maybe it is technically in the Catholic catechism, but mm-hmm. you know, they, the mass is so embodied, yeah. you know, their, their, yeah. their, their corporate worship is different. And then certainly in the Eastern Orthodox church, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, the, right. it's the Christ coming and defeating death is, yes. is the main. Well, it's metaphor. the whole, whole story of God that started yeah. in, in creation and will one day be a, a new heaven, new earth. Yeah. Yeah. The Orthodox so, are the best at, yeah. at keeping that in mind. Mm-hmm. But if we focus on the, on the jury version of mm-hmm. sin and repentance right. and Christ is the defense attorney who takes yeah. our punishment, then that will be the way we think of repentance Yeah, rather than like Jesus saying, Hey, Something has begun yeah, here. There's a whole new way. <laughs> Therefore, turn uh-huh. and live yeah. into this way. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That's, I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you feel comfortable talking about your own personal practices around this stuff? Sure. sure. What do you do? <laughs> so I already talked about one of the first things I do. You know, I get it all ready. I, it's an event for me yeah. just because I, I want it to be that way. But And I've done it so many years. And this is the same time every morning? Yeah, is it morning, same evening? same time every is morning. It... I, have, I haven't had to set an alarm for many, many years. Okay. I wake up early. I'm a morning person. Wake up. I get up have my coffee when it's cold enough in San Diego. I light the fire. I touch base with what's going on inside of me first. I say, here I am. Here I am. What am I bringing to this place? I acknowledge that I'm not alone. And I have to acknowledge that every day. 
You, you know, have to remind yourself. I have to that. remind myself. Yeah, I'm not alone. You are. You are here. I, I. And then I do different things. The distraction element. I have an exercise in the book. I don't have to do it as much anymore. I had to do it for a while, but I do deep breathing, spiritual breathing, where you breathe as you breathe in. You're breathing in something of the spirit, and as you breathe out, you're breathing out things that you know are not uh, helpful. I do that until I settle down until I feel I'm really present. And then it just varies. You know, it really varies. Yeah. One thing I love about this corner of Christian practice mm-hmm. is there's really just so many things you yeah, might try. That's no true. one's got a corner on the market. Exactly. Try things like I have invented Protestant ways of using a rosary. Mm-hmm. Sure. Just like sometimes that works. Yeah. Beads are helpful. I have prayer beads. In there. I, mm-hmm. I like beads in my mm-hmm. fingers that helps me focus. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you could do that. You could not do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do whatever you want. Yeah. Obviously your book has some practices in it. So people yeah. will, of course I'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And then I'll also ask you for any other websites that you think mm-hmm. are good resources. I'll put those in there as well Yeah, in terms of things that people can try. But really it's that, that is the thing you say at the beginning of, of having to come to figure out where you're at. What am I bringing here? Yeah. I think I did a better job of that a couple years ago than I'm doing these days. Mm-hmm. I, I've gotten to a point where frankly, I'm trying to check this box because I know my day will be better. Yeah. And when I first started, yeah. I really didn't, I really was more curious. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I, that's something I'd like to get better at again, mm-hmm. because you really, you know, I might try a little mantra, like a centering prayer yeah. mantra, and then I get two minutes in, and I'm like, I don't feel that way. Yeah. I don't, yeah. that's not where I'm at. Mm-hmm. So then I have to start over and go, okay, where am I at? Yeah. What, what's going on in me right yeah. now? And then without that, you yeah. can't. It's, it's I, I quote Rowan, I, th- I think it's in that book, it might be in my other book. Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury said, you know, the problem with prayer is not whether God shows up, it's whether I show up. Right. And yeah. that's kind of what I think is, am I really showing up? And sometimes I'm 15 minutes in before I realize I haven't even shown up here yet, you know, yeah. because I've been thinking about this and thinking about that and moving here and moving that and yeah. So. Oh yeah. That's, that's uh, my whole life right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, Trisha, Dr. Rhodes, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time and for writing this book. Is there, do you have a word for someone who hasn't tried Mm -hmm. this, someone who's been Mm -hmm. struggling with it, you know, whatever. I just want to encourage people that God in my understanding is the great inviter. And I, I have another book, uh, Soul at Rest that I wrote was my first book and I got to rewrite it last year. And when I went through it, because it was 25 years later, mm. when I went through it, the one thing I said I had to make sure I did different was I had to make sure every page was invitational rather than instructional or challenge because I just have come to understand God is invitational. So he stands and I believe this with all my heart. He stands arms open for anybody that will just create some space And it's a beautiful thing. (laughs) My theology nerd self can't help but making this connection. I don't think that you and I would probably see this the same way. But for those of you who are into process theology and open and relational theology, that lines up very well. Mm. I mean, that's the idea in process thought is that God is in time Mm. with us 
always luring, Mm -hmm. always calling Mm -hmm. and not acting coercively and unilaterally in the universe, Mm -hmm. but always inviting us Mm -hmm. into whatever God is doing. Mm -hmm. And so there, there you go. You could put those two things together (laughs) if you want to, you don't have to, of course you can be a more of a classic theist and Mm -hmm. still do contemplative practice. Most, if not all the people who wrote those really influential texts had a more traditional understanding of God. So of course you, it's not necessary I don't want to lay that trip on anybody, but I just, I did notice that that's in my own intuitions. I find that interesting. Well, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Man, what a great chat with Trisha. Uh, But now we turn to a patron question submitted by Dan. You often mention that you were more afraid to be a liberal Christian than a non-believer when you were younger. What's the main belief you feared would change and has it changed? Is there anything that changed as you became more progressive that went back to or is now trending toward a more traditional position over time? This is a fantastic question. I'm not surprised that it destroyed the other questions on the uh, Facebook group. I'll say a little bit more about the context of the question before answering it directly, since not everybody has listened to every episode and necessarily even heard the context of me mentioning that. So I have mentioned it a couple times in various interviews, and the language that I use was afraid. I was more afraid of being a liberal Christian in some sense than I was of leaving the faith altogether. But it seems kind of silly on the face of it, right? Like, how could it be worse to be a liberal Christian than to be a non-believer altogether? At least liberal Christians say they love Jesus, whether or not they actually did do, whether or not they are self-deceived in some grand sense. And I think that if anybody had actually asked me what would be worse, I would have said it's worse to be an atheist than to be a liberal Christian. But there was something there, not always conscious, that I have been able to identify mostly in hindsight. One part of that became a little clearer in my chat with Terry Shoemaker for the culture war Christianity episode. And that is the military language associated with religiously motivated culture wars. A spy or a traitor is worse than an enemy combatant. In this case, someone who wasn't raised religious or was raised in another religion. You know, you hear stories from World War I when troops exchanged Christmas greetings or presents or whatever across the trenches on Christmas Eve. Like soldiers can respect soldiers from other armies, but traitors, that's another story. So that's one part of it. Another part is related to the fact that I struggle with anxiety and have basically all my life. In Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns against false prophets. And James 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, the thing about teaching is I don't think I can really stop from becoming a teacher. I mean, I could not make a podcast, but it still comes out at parties and any, anywhere else I find myself. I'm the kind of person who almost compulsively shares whatever knowledge I'm gaining with the people in my life. And as an anxious person, I'm never totally sure that I'm not completely in the wrong about all of this, that I'm missing something glaring that should be obvious but isn't. And of course, if I get that wrong, 
then it's possible that something like hell awaits me for my treasonous actions. Now, obviously, this is not what I think is going on. I think that I'm being faithful to the God of love who has freed me from so much, including freed me from a nervous and fruitless search for religious certainty that lasted well into my 20s. But you see how this connects? I suppose that if I became an atheist, I might start an atheist podcast, but I don't think that I would. I think that I would just think it was either a waste of time or I should just live and let live and find something else to work on. Perhaps I would maybe go straight into philosophy where everything is judged on the merits of the arguments presented. It's not really a religious conversation. But if I stay a Christian but become a liberal one, then I'll keep teaching. I'll keep talking about theology, compulsively mostly. And then maybe I will inadvertently become a false prophet, a teacher judged more harshly. Now, even as I was typing out my answer, thinking through this question, these phrases haunt me like they produced some anxiety. And uh, probably some of you who listen to this show think that I have gone too far on a lot of the on a lot of these issues, at least. And you do, in fact, worry that I'm leading people astray. And you could be right. Certainly, I know that I'm wrong about plenty of things. I just don't know which ones I'm wrong about, to quote N.T. Wright. And I think that this is why it's so standard in evangelical circles, for instance, to never criticize people for being too conservative, only for being too liberal. Because at least if we're overly conservative, we're not in danger of being false prophets. That's how I think the subconscious sort of thinking goes. But I think that that reasoning is flawed. Certainly, there are dangers on the right as well. If conservatives are wrong, then we have an entire gender robbed of the plans God might have for them. We have unnecessary persecution of sexual minorities. We might have continued devastation and warming of the planet due to common conservative readings of some biblical passages. Certainly, the understanding about the earth and salvation and global warming that is most common in evangelical right-leaning circles in America today is going to contribute to that problem if they're wrong. So anyway, that's the basic picture. Um, now to Dan's actual questions he asked. The first was, what belief was I most afraid would change and has it changed? Now this one is hard to answer because I have a really bad memory, but I'm going to try and put myself back in the shoes of my early 20s self. And I'll start by saying this. The number one thing I was afraid of was hell. It was getting it wrong in some basic way, not making the cut, and going to hell. That was really the primary motivating fear. So the follow-up question to that would be, what kind of belief change did I think might land me in hell? Now, some of you were raised far more conservative than I was, and you might have a long list of beliefs or actions that you would have thought could land you in hell. I mean, silly examples would be like dancing and gambling or even having gay sex would send you straight to hell, even though none of that's in the Bible. But I didn't I didn't have that kind of uh, upbringing. So the only weird verse that people would quote occasionally was the only unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But no one ever really seemed to understand what that actually meant. So in terms of beliefs, I don't think I don't think any particular belief I thought would send me to hell. I think what scared me most was like a breakdown of the rational arguments that proved to me that Christianity was true. 
So since I didn't have a particular way I thought I might go to hell, the next level down for me in terms of anxiety was just this kind of apologetics approach to Christianity being true, or at least very probably true. So it was more like a web of beliefs than one particular belief. But that web had to do with evidence for Jesus's resurrection, evidence for the inspiration of all scripture, including things like prophecies that came true, or even like the health benefits of Israelite dietary laws, which supposedly showed like divine protection from God to God's people, which I suppose I'm not totally against that in general, but I wouldn't use it anymore as an apologetic. Uh, And then finally, basic arguments for the existence of God. So pretty standard apologetic stuff for those of you who spent any time in that corner of Christianity over the last 20 years or so. Um, And Dan asked if that belief, or in my case, that web of beliefs did in fact change. It did. It, It did change. I no longer believe that Christianity can in any way be proven through rational argument or evidence to be true. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that basic Christian claims are incomprehensible or irrational. I certainly don't think that. But I used to believe that any rational person presented with the evidence would naturally become a Christian. And I no longer believe that that is true. I now think that life is far too complicated. People are too contextual. We are too enculturated to even get the kind of bird's eye view that would be necessary for something like that to work. Now, I do think that, for instance, a philosopher who has tons of time to read widely in theology and science and archaeology and psychology, that this person, this widely read intellectual, would be wrong to to conclude that Christianity is silly or irrational. So it's rational enough that that would be the wrong way to respond to widely reading. But how many of us have that kind of time? And is that what God is actually after? I now think that that this kind of certainty that I used to want is not what God is after at all. It's what we are after. And increasingly, I think of it as contrary to actual faith, which has to be lived out despite a lack of overwhelming evidence. A couple weeks ago, Dale Martin talked about the Jesus of the gospel of Mark, who is hidden a lot of the time. That really resonated with me. But for instance, that would not have resonated with me when I was 19 years old. Now, The second of Dan's questions, whether any beliefs throughout all this change have actually gone back to a more traditional viewpoint. It depends on how we define traditional uh, or for that matter, what counts as a belief. So I'll explain what I mean. In this case, I'll use traditional to refer to my upbringing, pretty standard, but non-fundamentalist evangelicalism. And I'll give myself a wide berth on what counts as a belief. But I do have an answer to this question. The phrase that was used most regularly in my early religious life was personal relationship with Jesus Christ. By my mid-20s, I was completely done with that phrase. Around 30, our church in Seattle hired a spiritual life director, and I had coffee with her, and I specifically mentioned to her that she should reconsider using that phrase. She had done it in front of the congregation. Because I told her I thought that a lot of us in the church, and especially in my generation, had grown quite sour on that phraseology. But then shortly after that chat, actually, I started on and off doing contemplative practice. And I started reading some of the mystics of Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, even some Protestants, many of whom came up earlier in my chat with Tricia today. And I kind of rediscovered that term and what it might mean. Now, I often joke 
that growing up evangelical personal relationship with Jesus mostly meant do your quiet times and don't touch yourself. Quiet times should be done with the teen study Bible, by the way, for those of you who had, who had that Bible. Uh, I'm sure there was the occasional speaker or leader who put a little more meat on the bone, but I don't remember it much if they did. However, once I started this new journey through centering prayer, praying the examine, doing gospel contemplation and, and Lexio Divina, God met me and continues to meet me in a personal and relational way. So the phrase personal relationship with Jesus Christ, much as it even today irks me a little to use that exact verbiage, is a pretty accurate phrase. I don't personally think of that as referring to like overly emotional worship music experiences or speaking in tongues or whatever, but also I can't discount those experiences that other people have, especially if for them it feels anything like what my own prayer feels like. So that's my answer, Dan. Thank you for your question. Um, patrons, you can always email me with these questions or send me a message on Patreon or post them in the Facebook group anytime you want, and I will add them to my list to take part in all of this, to be able to submit questions or to vote on which ones get answered. Become a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. You have permissionpod.com and click become a patron. Now, back to the notes of my chat with Trisha. Uh, the conversation today was edited by Joe Diaz Romero. Big thank you, Joe. I've got links to Trisha's site, to her books, The Wired Soul and The Soul at Rest, as well as a link to Madame Guyon's autobiography. And it is free if you have a Kindle. So I have a Kindle link here. You can also read that for free online. And then the Fenelon book, which includes Christian Perfection. I have a link to that as well. I already mentioned the Patreon and the Facebook group. Uh, so all I'll say is share these episodes. They're supposed to be a resource to help conversations bud and grow. I'd love to know how those conversations are going. Email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you want me to cover, who I should interview, what's keeping you up at night. Just be in touch. I appreciate you guys so much. Your support with time and patrons and all of that. And I look forward to meeting some of you soon. <laughs> uh, I guess I'll see you next week. 